0: morning's readings out of Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the father's house in Judah and Benjamin and the priest and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them assided them with Vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithrid, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bo- bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400, and these did Cheshabar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the very word of God.
1: There we go. Sorry. So uh, last week, Ben preached the uh, opening of this sermon series uh, introduction um, and covered kind of the breadth of the history. But I think that we need to remember uh, a couple of things uh, before we move on into these two specific chapters today, uh, chapter one and chapter two of Ezra. So the first thing that we need to recall is a bit of context. So uh, a portion of Israel had survived when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel. And of that portion of the survivors, there was a portion that was exiled to Babylon. Uh, This was Nebuchadnezzar's political plan in order to, uh, to, to keep the people he conquered at bay. And so he wanted to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. So he had removed a large portion of this, the, the few survivors of Israel uh, to Babylon. This diaspora had been living in Babylon for about 50 years before the accounts pick up in Ezra. Um, they, they, one thing that he pointed out very in particular was that this political capture of Israel was not just the might of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's army, but very specifically the word of God says that it was because of Israel's disobedience and their sin that they had been exiled to Babylon. Um, And then we see King Cyrus, the Persian, has now taken over the Babylonian empire and the Persian empire is now on the scene. So that's our context. Um, Second, is a point that Ben pointed out that we as followers in Jesus have to be very careful about extrapolating prophecy and promises from the Old Testament to the New Testament church. And in particular, we as individuals need to be very careful of extrapolating those promises to us as believers. And he used Jeremiah twenty nine eleven in order to, uh, to, to point this out um, Jeremiah 29 11, very familiar verse, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you, plans for uh, a hope and a future, not for evil. So uh, lots of people take this promise upon themselves when in actuality, that's a promise that was given very specifically to Israel in regards to their exile to Babylon. So a very uh, pertinent uh, promise for our text that we're reading today. Um, and then the, the third thing is, though we might not be able to directly claim some of these promises from the Old Testament, it is still very, very important for us as the New Testament church and believers to understand what's going on, specifically in the book of Ezra as we study it, but really all of the prophets in general, uh, because they point towards promises that we can claim. They are pointing towards God's work and the coming of the Messiah. All right, so that is our context. Um, Our scripture reading this morning was chapter one, all of chapter one. Um, I saved us from reading all of the names and numbers of chapter two, but we will be um, getting into that text um, and pulling some things from it. Um, I believe that what God wants us to see from these two chapters this morning is this very specific term that's used, the Lord God of heaven, what that means and how it relates to God as a promise keeper, and then our response um, should be worship and how we should respond to this promise. Um, I'm going to start with going over basically an outline of the two chapters, and then I'm going to come back and pull this, uh, this particular application from the text. So, Beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, God has prophesied through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, and in Isaiah 45, 4 through 7, that Israel would come back to Judah and to Jerusalem, and the temple would be rebuilt. And in verse 1 and 4, we see the proclamation of this is that promise being fulfilled, um, and then. Uh, and we see that, uh, I'll just read it again for us. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing saying, thus says the king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all things of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judah. Lots of debate on how Cyrus knew specifically that God had appointed him to be the one to do this. The the most widely accepted is that Cyrus studied lots of religions. He had probably had biblical text introduced to him, and he recognized that this prophecy was about him and the fact that he had established this empire and he was to, uh, to, to help Israel go back Now, one thing that we need to be very, very clear about is that even though Cyrus makes this statement, the Lord God of heaven, does not mean that he believes that statement. So just like I mentioned a moment ago that Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to disperse the people that he conquered, uh, Cyrus had a very different plan. Cyrus thought that his God that he worshiped, which happened to be a Babylonian God, um, had allowed him to rise to power. And that it, it wasn't just his God that had done that, but it was all the gods of all the other people that had been conquered that were praying to his God in order for that to happen. And so Cyrus, by making this proclamation, is actually making a political nicety to the people of Israel by calling their God by their proper name, not his own recognition of what that means. Because we we see later in the story, and, we're, and we're, as we go through Ezra, we'll recognize that that that's very much true. But um, nevertheless, Cyrus makes a decree, and and then the rest of the chapter tells us what happens. Um, and in the chapter two, we'll see that forty two thousand uh, men uh, return to to Babylon underneath this command. But in in chapter one, verse five through six, uh, the response of the people to Cyrus's decree takes place. Um, it's it's very much reminiscent of the Egyptians returning from exile in, uh, I'm sorry, the Israelites re- returning from exile in Egypt. So uh, very much like when uh, Israel was about to leave and cross the Red Sea, the Egyptians began to give them goods and wares from their own uh, wealth. And Israel then had those items to go back and uh, into freedom. And as they uh, then got stuck in wandering. They had all the things that they needed to build the the tabernacle that God would instruct them to build. And so very much the same here in verse 5 and 6. Um, the Babylonians, um, under this decree, give Israel what they need to go back and, and refurnish the temple. Uh, verses 7 through 11 is basically like a biblical receipt of all of the goods um, that had been stored in Babylon's treasury. And the the fact that Cyrus is turning those things back over to Israel. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 54, chapter 2 is 70 verses long, and the the bulk of it is basically a who's who list of names and numbers. These are the heads of houses, and this is how many people are in this house, and they go back to uh, Israel. Now, uh, the thing to point out is, like, Anytime we come to texts like this, uh, where we have all of these names and numbers that we tend to get lost in, we get bored reading through or distracted in, they are there for a very particular purpose. And in this case, it shows Judah's need to uh, to show their lineage, their belonging to Judah. And, and so uh, we'll point that out in just a moment as we get further into the text. Uh, chapter Two verses fifty-five through sixty-seven are a summary of the number and inclusion of those that who could not prove their lineage. So a big bulk of this is who we are, this is who we belong to in our lineage. And then there are this group of people that have forgotten over the course of this fifty years who exactly they belong to or where their people had settled in Judah. And so they're included there, as well as what was probably a bulk of people that were not Israelites. They were not from the line of Judah. These were converts that had converted to Judaism and would travel back to Judah with them, as well as the servants. And then verses 68 through 70 at the end are gifts that are given at the tabernacle and the resettlement of the people and how that took place. Three things that we need to glean from this outlined text. One is that God is a promise keeper. Two, that God is sovereign in that promise keeping. And three is that man should have a very particular response. And it's demonstrated as worship. It comes in lots of forms, but man's response to God's keeping of promises and his sovereignty should stir us and drive us to worship. Although we may not directly claim some of the prophecies, um, there are certainly things that we must come away from text with when we see God make promises. There, There are things that we can recognize about his character and his identity that are true in that promise that we can claim and that we can recognize and that can drive us to worship. And in this case, it's purely the fact that he is a promise keeper. God had made a promise. He had made this prophecy through Jeremiah and Isaiah specifically. I mean, it was a very specific promise. He had said that Cyrus would be the one that reestablished Jerusalem. Um, and we, we see not only that he foretells something very specific, but we see that his intentions, what, what God has intended, he also demonstrates in his sovereignty in the exact way that it takes place. So uh, we know this is not true only from our text today, but if you look at Proverbs chapter 21, it says, God says, a king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. This is a truth that we can understand about the God that we serve, that he is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. In our text today, it specifically said that God stirred the heart of Cyrus, to do this. Cyrus says, I'm the one that's supposed to do this. I'm going to make a decree. But the text tells us very specifically that it's God that stirred this to happen in this man. He doesn't leave his promises and his prophecies merely to the will of men. God takes the step of sovereignty and works this out. So, Israel, um, as disciplined for their sin, is in exile. They've been there for decades. Now the time has come for restoration. Here they are, this tiny remnant of a people in this massive, quickly expanding Persian Empire, to date, the largest empire the world had ever known. And God says, It's time for my temple to be rebuilt. And in that setting, he stirs the heart of the most powerful man in the world in order to reestablish his place of worship. I don't see the weight of that on your faces. The God that you say you believe in, the one that you say that you serve by being here this morning to worship, is the God that directs the heart and the wills of the most powerful empires in the world. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Still don't see the recognition. Like, this is the Lord God of heaven, the one that directs emperors and empires, the one that you today are claiming to be your God. Okay. Okay. Thanks, David. All right, God never leaves prophecies and promises to be fulfilled by the will of men. God does it himself. Your God does this. He didn't do it just in Cyrus. He, uh, he was sovereign in keeping this promise because if we look at verse five, we see very, very similar words. We see, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So God didn't even leave it up to the decree of Cyrus. He then took the houses of Judah and he stirred up the fathers and he said, it's time to go rebuild. Those men stood up and they took their families, thousands of people each, and marched from Babylon to to Jerusalem to rebuild the kingdom. Like, you guys know what that looks like when 42,000 people get up and say, God says it's time and we're going. And then everybody in the community begins to hand them everything they need and they walk off. You're still not tracking. (laughs) Um, like, Like, this is a big deal. This is a huge example of a promise-keeping God in his sovereignty, keeping a promise. And when we come to this text, we should be stirred like these men were. We should be stirred to the other promises that God has made, right? Because the story doesn't end right there. It wasn't that God's plan was to reestablish Jerusalem in a temple and that people would worship him in a building for the rest of eternity. That wasn't his plan, He had other promises that he had made. He had made a promise to these same people that there would be a king. That king had come and had gone, but he said in that line would be a Messiah that would rule forever. So when these men pick up their families and they go back to reestablish the the temple at Jerusalem and reestablish the city, it wasn't just to reestablish a building with all of this fancy stuff that had just been handed them. It was in hope that a king was coming, that their kingdom would be restored, that the Messiah would come and this promise that we're reading this morning should stir that same thing up in us. and actually, like the, the promise is right here in our text we didn't we didn't read chapter two this morning, but we're gonna we're gonna jump to to chapter two and we're going to look at verse. To. Now these were the people of the province who came out of captivity Of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Zariah, Reliah, Mordecai, and the list goes on now, some of those names probably sound really familiar to you right now, like other persons that we know in the Old Testament, right? Like we're familiar with, uh, uh, probably familiar with Mordecai, maybe with Nehemiah. These two people are not the ones that you're probably already thinking of, okay? If you look at the timing of what's going on here, this is not Mordecai from, from the wall. This is not uh, Nehemiah that rebuilds a wall, Just really common Old Testament names. However, if you notice Zerubbabel, you guys know Zerubbabel, right? Maybe not. He's going to become really, really prominent in the the next seven chapters of Ezra. He's the one that is going to lead this people. He's the one that's going to help to initiate the rebuilding of the temple. Okay? But that's not why I point out his name right now. The, the reason that I point out his name is really because of who his father was. You guys know who his father was? No? Um, you, you don't see it in chapter 2, but if you read in verse uh, 2 of chapter 3, you see that his father is Shiatiel. I think I'm getting my Hebrew right there. Um, but that tells you, right? That clarifies everything for everybody? Son of Shiatiel? No? What about if I say it like this, shetiel beget Zerubbabel? Does that make it more clear? Still no? Not tracking with me this morning. That's fine. That's fine. All right. So uh, here's, here's what I want us to do. Uh, what if we uh, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, and it says, After the deportation to Babylon, Jequonai, Jac- uh, the father of Shetiel and Shetiel the father of Zerubbabel and if we read that lineage 12 generations later we see a promise kept because this man named Jesus is born to a man named Joseph that was born to and on up the lineage the promise that Jesus was or that God was keeping in returning these families to rebuild the temple was way bigger than the temple being built. He was at work stirring up the heart of a man that would be the great, 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 10 times over grandfather of the Messiah that was promised. And that's a promise that we can claim. That's why we're here. That's why we're studying Ezra this morning, so that we can be reminded that we have a God that is a promise keeper, a God that is sovereign, and a God that has given us the Messiah. And He stirred up our hearts that we believe that. Let me pray for us. Father, you have stirred hearts. For generations, for centuries. Father, we thank you that you make prophecy and that you keep promise through men like Cyrus, a man that did not even believe that you were the Lord God of heaven. God, I thank you that that's true about your character and that as hard as it is to believe that now in the 21st century, that the things that Brother John prayed over this morning, the things that he prayed for in the Middle East are completely possible because you are a God of emperors and empires. And so, Father, again, we plead for Peace in that place because it because it could bring you worship and glory just like it did in Israel. And God, I thank you that that you give us the example of Israel that when they when they arrived in that that they didn't just go back to their land. The first thing they did was they walked up to the to the previous foundation of the temple, and they gave free will offerings. God, that should be our response this morning. God, as we have our hearts stirred by your spirit, that we recognize you for who you are, that, God, our response would be worship. So, God, I pray that the remainder of this service is just the outpouring of us recognizing who you are as we proclaim you in song as we proclaim you in baptism of our brother, and as we proclaim you in the receiving of your promise, the new covenant in communion. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.